Hello and welcome to The Lancet Voice. I'm Jessamy Baganall. And I'm Gavin Cleaver. It's September 2021 and we're very pleased to have you on board. The mental health of people working in health professions has been at the forefront of all of our minds during the COVID-19 pandemic. But mental health issues have always been a problem in the healthcare world. In The Lancet this week, there's a review of the evidence around the mental health of physicians accompanied by an editorial. Some of the conclusions are striking. In low- and middle-income countries, there is very little research to go on. But in high-income countries where studies have been performed, rates of depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder and alcohol use tend to be higher than in the general population. In the USA, estimates suggest one physician dies by suicide every single day. To talk about this sensitive topic, Jess and me spoke with three people from the Temity Faculty of Medicine in Toronto who run interesting physician wellness initiatives. First, you'll hear Pierre Bryden, Senior Advisor for Clinical Affairs and Professional Values, and Julie Maggie, Director of the Postgraduate Wellness Office and the COVID-19 Faculty Wellness Coordinator, and also Lisa Richardson, Associate Dean of Inclusion and Diversity. All right, well, let's kick it off then. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about the sort of historical context of physician well-being, some of the research, where it started, um, you know, where it's new and, and guess where it's headed. So the majority, I think probably you know that the majority of the early work uh, in physician well-being really focused on the individual uh, and the responsibility and the role of the individual in maintaining their well-being. And if you look at the literature, it's really just in the past 10 years that we've started to move a bit away from that. So all the original literature, um, I mean, there's still ongoing literature in the, you know, looking at the individual, but initially... Uh, all the intervention data really was individually based. Probably around 2015, 2017, there emerged a few seminal articles that looked at the organizational approach to physician well-being, and in particular, um, tried to understand what the key drivers were that contribute to well-being and conversely burnout, and what those articles showed what is that the factors that contribute to well-being are largely situated in the workplace. And then the other key thing that started to really come out in the literature around 2015, 2017 was the central role that leaders at all levels of the organization have on being able to maintain people's well-being uh, and preventing burnout. Uh, and there really there was an article in 2015 out of the Mayo Clinic. Uh, that really that looked at some of the factors that uh, characteristics of leaders, uh, what those characteristics were and the um, impact that having those or conversely not having those had on the well-being of the people who reported to the leader being studied. So more and more, we're really seeing this level of literature emerge, I think, that looks at leadership and organizational factors. You know, Wellness 1.0, as I said, was really looking at the individual. Wellness 2.0, if you sort of watch people's response to Wellness 1.0, was that it's all the organization uh, or it's all the system. Uh, And I think now wellness, what I like to call Wellness 3.0, is really trying to understand that it's not one or the other, but it's a complex uh, interplay between the individual working in an organization, existing in a system, and being embedded in uh, a larger cultures. Uh, and I think it's in being able to consider that complexity that we start to find the solutions. That's great. And, and just sort of picking up on some of the words that you've used there in terms of risk factors, 
what are the sort of generally agreed risk factors for problems with professionals' health and, and well-being? Right. So that's a good question. So in the workplace, the things that we've started to identify and study are um, what we would call, I guess, the dimensions that drive either well-being and engagement or conversely burnout. And they are things like um, things you might expect, like workload, job demands, um, efficiency and resources in the workplace, uh, but also things like social support and a sense of community and belonging in your workplace, um, the organizational culture and values, uh, the ability to integrate your work with your personal and you know, home needs, um, and the degree to which you have control or flexibility um, in, you know, in your job and in your workplace. And a lot of those really impact um, on people's sense of psychological well-being and psychological safety in the workplace. Uh, and those, you know, those together, I think, are um, largely related to um, or thought to be related to, you know, people's either, you know, again, well-being and engagement and amount of vigor they have at work as compared to being burned out. And so I can just add that one of the areas that we work on closely together is when we think about community and belonging, uh, you know, a, a lot of that is uh, also impacted on by the area of, you know, inclusivity and who do we include in our workplace and what do we need to be doing to make sure that everyone is included and welcomed and heard. And that's one of the areas that we try to work on together. Could we talk about the relationship between professionalism, physician well-being and inclusion and diversity? I, you know, when I think about well-being and when I think about um, the experiences of physicians and healthcare practitioners, particularly during this pandemic, which is exacerbated, I can't help but coming back to that word of inclusion because inclusion means that you bring your full self, your authentic self, to this space where you are working and learning. That you can be, you can be whomever it is. You're not having to put on a mask. You're not having to, to hide your identity. So that you're not in this, you're not having to perform, so to speak. Um, and the issue is that in medicine, although we have tremendous diversity, we haven't had inclusion because we've had the norms of behaviors the norms of practice, the norms of leadership, the norms of even how one interacts with one another and, and um, our, our patients being determined by um, a particular a group such that others um, have not seen themselves represented. So that when you're walking into a hospital or university setting, if you, in my case, come, you know, for, as an Anishinaabe Indigenous physician coming into this place where you're not seeing yourself represented and you're also seeing what's being rewarded as being this particular model, which is not yourself, there's this disconnect. So every time you're, everything you do in your work environment means you're in this, you, you're not able to be yourself. There's a little bit of, a, there's a mask that you're wearing. And so add to that, in particular, for those from structurally underrepresented groups and marginalized groups in medicine, we have a focus on Black and Indigenous 
learners and physicians because of the massive disparity in health outcomes. But of course, many other communities are represented there. Um, we realize that we're not supporting our clinicians and physicians and learners with disabilities. So, but when, when you're coming into these spaces, not only are you not feeling, seeing yourself represented or feeling supported, you are carrying this extra burden of having to do the work of supporting in their well-being because you are in the institution and people are looking to you. So we call that the minority tax. It's well described in the literature. So you're carrying all of this extra burden. And then additionally, you're carrying what's called a stereotype threat where you're, you're afraid that if you misstep, that you will represent the whole community so that no one will ever want to hire another black physician, physician with a disability, trans physician. So that those are the extra layers and why we realized that we couldn't possibly engage in this work without recognizing that intersection and those identities. So we do work around mentorship and support our offices are working closely together so that when we see that there's been, for example, a professionalism concern that's brought forward, is that simply a person who's having to speak up about an experience of racism or an injustice that they've observed? Or is that person experiencing like what we call racial battle fatigue? So they're exhausted and they're, you know, supporting, uh, doing a, a whole bunch of extra work that's not recognized by the institution that may be leaning, leading to burnout. So we really have seen, I think, a need to, to have that holistic perspective and understanding of well-being and how to support those. Because what I always say is when we lift up the well-being of those who feel most excluded in our system. We're creating actually supports where everyone can then benefit from thinking about well-being in a more holistic way, not just mental, physical, but emotional, spiritual health as well. Thinking about it not just at the individual or institutional level, but how we're connected to community. All of that will really help more broadly, we think. So that's sort of some of the intersectional work that we're trying to do. And just to piggyback on what you said, Lisa, you know, I think in many um, health care facilities, professionalism has become seen in quite a negative light. It's sort of the professionalism police and it's the stick that we're going to enforce conformity. And I think that's where your point, Lisa, about we really needed to redefine that for our faculties and learners around inclusion. And it's not about you become this individual who suddenly looks closer to the current leadership in power because we know there are gaps between who our leaders are and who our early career faculty and learners are, but we're actually looking at creating environments that encourage you to bring your full self to work. So I think that was a really important um, rethinking of professionalism, how far we've managed to be successful in conveying that to our faculty and learners, I think was still fairly early on, but that's a, that's one of our major goals. So interesting and, and important, I think also because from a sort of more international perspective, I think there is a growing narrative about the dark side of professionalism in terms of that conformity and how we address that and the conversations that we need to have, you know, on, on a on a really sort of societal level is, is very interesting. 
And why do you think these conversations around physician wellness and professionalism are, are difficult to have? They sometimes feel uncomfortable. I can definitely comment a little bit around that because I think it grows out of what I was speaking about. We have that. What is the construction of the good doctor? Who is a good doctor? We have been told that a good doctor is infallible, um, puts your head down, works really hard, gets through it all, the, has the discipline, resilience, ability to be super woman at home, at work, caring for other community, advocating, publishing. That is still the narrative. And so when one steps outside of it, it feels like you're letting down your profession, your patients, your family, and yourself. In a way, there's been this culture of, of silence around, um, around fallibility. And, and to me, this is about being human and about actually um, those moments of um, having experiences when you need to care for your own well-being are actually what we should be doing, what we should be thinking about for our patients as well. But we've always separated ourselves from that. So when you come forward, you know, you're scared. There are repercussions about your job, about your disability insurance, about um, your potential to progress academically, to be considered in a leadership role, um, et cetera. So I think that that's been certainly one of, one of the concerns that I've seen. Yeah, and if I can piggyback on that, these are, very real concerns that people have observed over generations, right? Uh, and I think um, uh, for us to come out and say, you know, we're not well, or we need to step away, or we need to do X, Y, or Z to take care of ourselves. So to, you know, to do the individual things we need to maintain our well-being really risks I, th I think people see it happen every day, right? It risks your reputation uh, within medicine. It risks your, um, you know, concerns about being promoted. It risks how you're seen by others. Um, and so these are, you know, there's so much telling us not to speak up about this and not to take care of ourselves that we have a lot of work to do to turn that around. Yeah, I think shifting the focus from kind of, omnipotence and deprivation to one of self-care is it, I mean they're polar opposites so it's, it's a long way to go it's difficult it encompasses everything else our families and the way that physicians live in their lives um, you know applying a gender lens also it's things are are changing I mean and I wonder what you feel about that aspect of it the profession is changing in terms of diversity and, and who is you know who's joining it certainly post COVID-19, I'm sure there will be further changes. There seems disparity in our thinking and, and who is actually coming into the profession now. How do you think we bring those together? And is there some urgency to it? It feels like there is some urgency to it. I mean, I, I think there is an urgency to it, right? If you, if you look at, if we looked at the, the data just in COVID-19 on some, you know, some of the data that we looked at locally and the, um, the, the literature, the published data also reflects this, that um, women, for example, are, are, have been disproportionately affected in the you know, academic medicine. And looking at our local data, the most one of the most common um, sources of 
stress and request for support with was childcare during the pandemic, right? Uh, and so it's hard to imagine, I find it hard to imagine how we will emerge from this pandemic without actually addressing this with urgency. I also think it's quite a radical agenda. I mean, if we think economically, we've really downloaded historically a lot of the costs onto the families of physicians and physicians themselves. You know, I'm still speaking about physicians, but we're clearly seeing through the pandemic, this is also true of nurses, of other healthcare professionals. And I think as we have more data around the costs that that has had for healthcare professionals exacerbated by the pandemic and more people willing to speak up as a result, we're starting to realize this would be a major redesign. And in some cases, expensive redesigns and others, I think perhaps if we really do this well, not so much, and there could be some long-term gains, but you know, things like our depth of staffing, for our healthcare units um, so that it's not a major issue for your team if you're ill and you need to stay at home. Um, job shares, leaves, um, disability insurance, you know, these are all things with dollars attached and quickly become politicized. And as we talked a little bit of earlier, you know, physicians had historically a bit of a generalization, but often position themselves outside politics. And so now if we're really going to make changes that we see, you know, are for the good of not all healthcare professionals and therefore patients, we're really entering the political fray about where do we put our money around our healthcare institutions? You know, are we salaried? Are we not salaried? How do we staff our training programs? How do we staff our consultant faculty levels? Do we provide on-site childcare? Um, you know, these are major political and economic decisions that physicians are starting to advocate for. So maybe that could move us nicely onto, you know, what role other sort of external forces, not really external, but sort of larger forces, you know, medical regulators, educational colleges, health bodies, what role do they have in this? And where do you see their input being? And, and, and do we have examples where there is some movement already? I can make a comment uh, about medical regulators, I think. Um, and uh, I make this comment partly from having the experience of talking to a lot of physicians and partly from looking at what's in the literature. And, you know, I want to preface it with, it's not an easy job, I think, to be a medical regulator because your, your primary focus um, is to ensure the safety of the public. Right. And without question that um, that has to happen or, you know, that the public could be at risk. Now, that being said, I think that we have to be. Um, I think we have to be open in medicine, which is still self-regulated where we are anyways, I think in, in many places um, in identifying where there are structural um barriers or structural stigma is built into the ways in which we ask questions about people's health uh, and well-being, the ways in which we monitor people's or physicians' health and well-being, um, so that we are not inadvertently stigmatizing those with certain kinds of disabilities or certain kinds of, um, you know, health 
difficulties because it's not everybody with a certain diagnosis, for example, that needs monitoring, right? So those in, those for whom it impacts on their ability to take care of patients safely, arguably would need some kind of monitoring potentially to ensure that they were still sort of safe in the workplace. But that isn't, that, that's not everybody, right? So I think we have to be very um, uh, courageous in having these discussions about where there are some, you know, sort of there's built-in structural stigma uh, and be able to look at those and advocate for the changes that um, that may need to happen. Lisa, I'm sure has, you could probably add more to that and Pierre. Well, I just, the whole conversation around professionalism when it's linked with regulators as well is constructed from a punitive approach. Mm-hmm. All of these conversations are deficit-based and how do we flip the approach and the structures to actually move to a strength, what I would call a strengths-based approach, where expressing your vulnerability and recognizing and knowing that you may need help becomes something that's a marker of your insight, your self-care, your self-knowledge, and where you in coming forward can be supported and coached around what you need to thrive, as opposed to being in an environment where the moment you acknowledge there is a concern, then you're worried about um, how it will be managed and handled. And so we just are perpetuating that model. So it really is for me a rethinking of the way in which we imagine this, where, you know, in, in, in other communities and environments, actually that self-knowledge is considered a tremendous gift to have that level of insight and to be aware of when you're reaching your limit. And wow, like maybe I need to take a little time off. I've got a lot going on. I, I really see that because how, and, and I see that when I look at the work of regulators around patients bringing forward concerns as well. What I hear from Indigenous patients and Black patients, they, are, they, they don't want to go through a regulatory process and bring forward a complaint because that process itself feels so traumatizing as opposed to a restorative model. How do we move from punishment to restoration in these conversations in the way in which we look at this work? Thank you to Peer, to Julie and to Lisa for talking with us about their initiatives and work. As I mentioned in the introduction, a review in this week's issue of The Lancet looks at the evidence for physician mental health issues. Jessamy also spoke with the author of that review, Sam Harvey, who's the deputy director of the Black Dog Institute in Sydney, Australia. Well, perhaps we might start by you just telling us a bit about your day-to-day work and how you became interested in this particular topic. Okay, well, I'm a psychiatrist and... At the moment, I'm the acting director at the Black Dog Institute. So the the Black Dog Institute's an independent medical research institute. We're based in Sydney in Australia. We've got about 250 staff members. And what we aim to do is we aim to do 
both research and then the practical applications of it. So within our staff, yes, we've got lots of researchers like myself, but we've also got the people who go out and do the education in workplaces and schools, the IT teams that develop our apps and, and clinical services. And one of the research streams we have is the workplace mental health stream. So really focusing on that link between work and mental health across a range of different groups, including health professionals. The evidence base in this area, that there wasn't any evidence 15 years ago, how far have we progressed? Do you know, I think one of the things that, that really became clear in, in writing this review and, and probably was a big part of the reason why we, we wanted to write it, I think what's progressed over the last couple of decades, there's no doubt that there's greater awareness of this issue, particularly amongst health professionals and, and physicians in particular. We're talking about mental health of physicians more than ever, but actually we've sort of struggled to get past that conversation. And, and so what, you know, there is an abundance of cross-sectional surveys documenting just how common symptoms of depression and anxiety are amongst physicians. So I, I really don't think the world needs many more of that. We know, we know the sort of what's going on. What there is still a real lack of is understanding why this is going on, why it's changing over time and what the, what the solutions are. Um, and I, I think that's an area where health professionals have really dragged behind other occupational groups. Um, you know, other occupational groups have shifted to say, okay, well, what do we need to be doing to solve this problem? Whereas that, that we still know surprisingly little about that. Um, I think the other big gap that, that's highlighted in this review is how little we know about low and middle income countries and what's going on with the health professionals there. Um, there's ample reason to think that what we're seeing in developed countries will be, that, that those same problems will be even greater amongst those workforces in low and middle income countries. But there's just so little evidence out there. Um, it it's really was, was hard to say much about that in this review. Yeah, I was about to ask because it's a small section, isn't it? But I mean, is it is it reasonable to think that there are similar things going on or do you think that it's very culturally or region specific? Do we have any idea about that or is it just speculation? Um, look, we know a little bit about it. I mean, we, we know that um, when of the studies that have been done, particularly looking at doctors in training, when they've look to see if there were major differences via region. There didn't seem to be. Um, but, of course, part of that was because there were some regions that there was so little data, it, they weren't really able to be included in a meaningful way. Um, I, I think there is, you know, clearly there is probably something about many of the doctors. Who, I, I think there are different factors that drive people into a career in medicine in different cultures and so I think that is probably going to be important but you know all the types of things that we know seem to be risk factors for doctors having mental health problems in terms of where there are work-related risk factors things like the number of hours they're having to work the the impact on um, their life outside of work the degree to which they're supported I mean all of those factors are off the charts within low and middle income countries. So frankly, it would be amazing if there weren't these problems there. 
the one thing that may help mitigate against that is there's a lot of protective factors in workplaces for doctors. Um, a lot of, uh, you know, in terms of that, that sense of purpose in what you're doing, being part of a community, um, seeing immediate reward in some cases. And I think what's interesting, if we look in developed countries, a lot of those things have been chipped away for physicians. And perhaps that hasn't occurred to the same extent in low and middle income countries. And so it might be that even though the risk factors are greater there, some of the work protective factors have have sort of moderated the impact of that. But it, it, that's largely speculation on my behalf. So what does your review demonstrate about physician wellbeing? One of the things is that if you look at, at a group of physicians, really in, in any country where they've been studied, you're going to find about 30% of them are reporting significant amount of depression or anxiety symptoms. That's actually pretty similar to what we see in other occupational groups. So in terms of the amount of, of mental health symptoms amongst physicians, it's not that there's clear evidence they're at increased risk, but there's pretty overwhelming evidence that they're at similar risk to other work groups. And that may seem like a a bit of a nothing conclusion, but but in a way it's important because I think many of us, when we were training as medical students, there was an implicit assumption that we were somehow immune to mental health problems. So it's clear that's not the case. It's also clear that it's not a rare problem. It's a pretty common problem. I think the other related figure, which is, is really important for us to come to terms with, is even though the level of symptoms are about what you would see in other similar working groups, the rate of suicide amongst physicians is higher than than just about any other occupational group. That's not being driven by increased symptoms. It's being driven by probably partly um, access and knowledge around ways to end your life, but also I think about the barriers for physicians being able to get help when they need it. And so, you know, we've got about a third of our, our doctors out there with significant levels of symptoms. For many of them, that will be transient and they don't need any any mental health intervention as such. But for many of them, they will. And I think what we're seeing is that the consequences of those barriers that we put about them being able to get help when we look at, at the suicide rates. I, I think the other real headline that I would pull out is that there is a bit of evidence that things are getting worse over time. And I think that fits with a lot of anecdotal stories, but there now is a bit of data that certainly over time there seems to have been a gradual increase in the amount of symptoms being reported. It's not yet clear whether those rates of suicide are, are, are changing over time. There's some evidence from some countries, but that's a, you know a real lag indicator. And I think that really pulls us in to, in a way, the the more important question around what what is going on in physicians' workplaces that is firstly leading so many of them to have symptoms and then that secondly might be causing it to be getting worse over time. I mean, we're hearing a lot, or, or I've been hearing recently, about this sort of silent epidemic of physician suicide in the States. Do you think that there are, are the rates there much higher than elsewhere or is this something that we're just becoming alive to really and, and just sort of understanding what what's going on in different places the evidence is it's, it's sort of the overall pattern of physicians having um uh, you know uh, uh, 
mortality rate, uh, relative rate of sort of about one and a half compared to what you'd see in the working population is, is pretty consistent across countries. Um, there is some data from some countries suggesting that things, that, that the relative risk of suicide might be particularly high for female physicians and that that might be something that's changing over time. My suspicion is that rather than there being an epidemic, what there is is a, a sort of an unmasking of what has been there for a while and, and that now we're just we're, we're talking about a bit more, we're noticing it, it's being reported. Um, and, yeah, you know, in the States it's, it's, it, it's sort of that some of the figures we quote in, in the paper are um, quite startling where, uh, you know, we've now got one physician dying by suicide every day in the US. You know, we can't, we can't keep looking away from that. And you raised some recommendations in the review about what, you know, things might be able to change and, and how they might, you know, make things better. How easy do you think they would be to translate? Can you walk us through them and, and how easy do you think they'd be to implement? There's a spread of, of, of how realistic some of these things are to be able to do in the short term. But in a way, as I mentioned at the start, that was my real motivation for, for wanting to, to write this paper because I, I think where we're at that stage where there's this increased awareness about mental health amongst physicians. But I think there's a risk that at the moment there's a lot of initiatives happening in hospitals and in training programs and in medical schools that are motivated by, by goodwill, people wanting to do the right thing, but they're uncoordinated and often they're not aligned to the research evidence of what works. And I think sometimes they can be problematic. Um, and there is a real risk that if we just think the answer is mental health awareness, that that can actually increase the problem. And I've, I've, I've seen medical students who have come to me and said, oh, we had a lecture about physician mental health and I'm now terrified that I should pull out of medicine because I'm going to become unwell because of these scary stats that I've seen. And, and this is one of these examples where I think we in the medical profession can look at other occupational groups and say, okay, well, what's, what has worked? And, um, you know, there's no, there's no magic bullet here. You need to be doing coordinated stuff and it needs to be beginning in medical schools and carrying on through, throughout the health system. And one of the things we, we talk about in the paper is the need for a systems-wide approach. And um, what that means is that there is stuff that we need to be directing towards individual physicians, but there is also stuff that has to be happening in the health system and there's also stuff that our professional training colleges and regulators need to be doing. And all of those things are important. Something which I hear doctors rightly sort of rally against is, is what often happens in addition to sort of what I, I consider to be slightly pointless, sort of mental soul, mental health awareness training, just operating in isolation, is then the, it sort of suggests, oh, the solution is resilience training. Let's make our doctors more resilient. Um, and, and of course, that's, you know, that implies that the problem is that somehow they're not resilient rather than actually addressing the factors that are causing the problem. So perhaps, perhaps what would be helpful is I give an example of some of the stuff that we're saying needs to happen. So even though I, I, I think we need to be very careful to say the whole answer to this problem is to make 
individual physicians more resilient. That that that's not the case. But I think there is stuff and there's reasonable evidence around what you can do with individual physicians. And that has to start in medical school. What used to happen was that nothing was said about it. Clearly, that's not good enough. Then we've been through a period where medical schools just want to roll out mental health awareness campaigns. I don't think that's good enough and we know that they don't really work. What we need to be doing is embedding practical skills within the training of our doctors in medical schools around teaching them active coping skills, normalising help seeking, normalising looking out for your peers. Um, And then that that needs to be reinforced in the early years. We know there's a big spike in mental health symptoms during intern and junior doctor years or residency years. Um, That's partly because that's the natural history of mental illness. That's, That's the age group that people tend to first present with significant symptoms, but it's also because they're really stressful times. And there has been uh, a small number of studies that have shown that you can teach cognitive behavioural mindfulness skill to doctors and and that it does make a difference during those risk periods. And we we summarised some of these in a separate review and meta-analysis we published in the Lancet Psychiatry looking at at that. So that's part of it. But actually, I think where the money really lays in this question is looking at what's going on in the health system. And and that's a great gap. And what's extraordinary is we know that's where the risk factors are. We know it's about working hours and about sort of the increased administrative burden, the lack of job security, and all of those levers are things that that it's a health system that, that can adjust. And yet when we've looked at the literature, there's not a single control trial that has tested some of adjusting some of those health system factors and the impact that has on physician mental illness. There are a couple of studies out there about physician burnout and that they show how effective some of those things can be. But we haven't even got to the point of being able to test how those organisational level shifts in a health system can can impact on, on physician health. But we know that that's where the greatest gain is going to be had. So, Jasmine, I really loved those interviews. Uh, One thing that really kind of struck me from them was Sam saying in his interview that this kind of, the kind of chat about physician well-being now is kind of an unmasking of the problem that, you know, now we're talking about it more, but it's always been there. What, What do you think about that? I think absolutely it has always been there there's always been a tension and a and a pressure between the desire to look after your patients and the need to keep yourself well and that's not just for physicians I think that spans over you know all healthcare workers I mean this is the year of the international year of health and care workers we've written about and talked about that before this year but these are people in society who you know, do sacrifice an awful lot of themselves and their families to look after others. And of course, there's tension there. I think, you know, some of the discussions that we've had around professionalism, there has been almost a need to build up this set of values, which means that that is the sort of received wisdom of what the role of a good doctor is, is is about self-sacrifice and serving humanity. But you know, that has a a very paternalistic backdrop and is 
very traditional and it's based on a, a health system which is no longer really the reality of what people work in today in terms of investment, numbers, demand. Those conflicting aspects, I think, have, have heightened the difficulties that people face. I was going to ask you about that characterization actually, because it came up in the first interview, didn't it? Lisa was talking about it. I found it very, very interesting. So would you say it's outdated? And kind of, I guess, how should people be thinking of of doctors, healthcare workers, health workers now, if it's not in this kind of self-sacrifice type vision, I suppose? I mean, that's a good question. And I don't I don't have the answer to that. It's something that we need to modernise and we need to question and ask ourselves really on a societal level, because these are issues that feed into a set of values that we have on a societal level and how we invest in things and how we approach things. I think there is this growing narrative now in, in healthcare and before in other professions about some of the dark sides of of professionalism you know particularly I think in other professions where people have been called unprofessional because maybe they're calling out something which doesn't fit with their set of values or is a sort of historical backdrop and that it's easy to label that as unprofessional I mean in an idealist world the professional is this set of values that that gives the public trust in doctors and trust in healthcare workers but it has to be a two-way system and, and that, that those set of values can't harm physicians or healthcare workers. I think that's the situation that we're in now and we need to reevaluate them. Do you think it's possible to get a similar health service which takes less of a toll on health workers? And I say this especially in light of obviously COVID taking a massive toll on health workers worldwide, but post-COVID, if, if such a thing it's going to happen. There's also going to be a backlog to deal with. So how do we kind of reimagine this? Well, it's difficult. I think it starts with investment and it starts with with honesty and, and with respect and understanding that individuals who work in the health and care systems have their own lives and their own needs and they have their own right to health. We know that having this sort of paternalistic and traditional set of rules that puts the patient first at the sacrifice of everything else is a way of, of upholding, you know, societies that have chronically underinvested in health professionals. So a start is to start investing in the number of health professionals and having that depth in the workforce that means that there is some flexibility, which we haven't had and which has, you know, decreased drastically really in the last sort of in the last years in relation to demand you know we have more pe- we have more doctors we have more nurses but in relation to actual demand things are very stretched in most places while you've been looking into this topic for for these interviews and, and for for the lancet because obviously you handled the uh, the review that's coming through in this week's issue was there an aspect of it that kind of most struck you you know what, what do you think will stay with you from this topic i think there are so many aspects and obviously i you know i think it's quite personal because we all have friends and colleagues and we've had personal experiences of working in these systems that can be very bad for people's mental health and very bad for people's lives. I think, you know, the suicide physician rate and the unexpected increased risk of females is particularly concerning. 
and taking a sort of gendered lens to that, the expectations that we have of being able to do this incredibly complex and difficult job. This is not just physicians, but nurses, physiotherapists, occupational health, any health and care professional, people who are caring on a day-to-day basis, and then having the emotional labour and unpaid labour of home life and families is an enormous struggle and one which we don't really recognise. Just the you know, the depletion on an emotional front of caring and looking after people all day, even at home and at work. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Lancet Voice. As ever, you can subscribe wherever you usually get your podcasts just by searching for The Lancet Voice. And we really look forward to seeing you again next time.